Hey, welcome to Meeple Syrup. It's episode 109. That's right. We're looking today at game design from an indigenous perspective. And with us today, we have a panel of amazing guests. And I'm going to pass it over to Dylan right now, immediate mount, to uh, introduce them to us. We also have a piece of pie, apparently. We do have a piece of pie. I am going to use the word poganotrophic as much as possible today because that's my favorite word right now. And I really don't believe that's a real word, but it's okay. a real word. It has to, it's beardy. But we are going to introduce our guests. Our guests are Elizabeth Leponce, who is assistant professor at Michigan State University. Go Spartans. <laughs> Alan, Alan Turner, who is an instructor at DePaul College of Computing uh, and Digital Media. And we have Jason Lewis, who is a piece of pie and also a professor. Tasty. <laughs> a professor of computation arts, design, at design and computation arts at Concordia University. And uh, I really would like to get right into the questions, actually. <laughs> you can see, and I can Thank introduce you. my son, Kiri, who is a wonderful Aww. guy. Oh, nice. <laughs> He's 11, so girls, you'll have to wait for it. Um, <laughs> right. So let's get right into the intros. Uh, Elizabeth, you did a, a game, a board game. So we'll start with your board game called A Gift of Food. And I was wondering if you could give a little bit of your personal background as well as uh, tell us a little bit about this board game. Sure. So I'm both Anishinaabe and Métis, and I've worked a lot with uh, many different Indigenous communities. So that particular board game was a collaboration with coastal communities and the Northwest Indian College. And the idea of the board game is really to engage intergenerational gameplay around traditional foods and expressing their six different ecosystems as well as many different forms of food uh, that are experienced through scenario cards. And everything is seasonal, and it all builds up to a potlatch. Now, the interesting thing about this game for me in terms of the design is that in a lot of board games, there's a competition in the sense that you, know, you have actions like backstabbing, right, and taking over territory. Well, in this game, it's quite different. And in fact, you're oriented around gratitude, generosity, collaboration, and stewardship. And by the end of the game, whether or not your win is actually dependent on, instead, the variety of foods you've gathered and what you're able to gift during the potlatch. That sounds really cool. And so we'll go to Alan, if you can tell us a little bit about, about your background and tell us about your game, Edrigor. Uh, so, hi. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big mix in Edrigors too. Um, so I'm African-American, Irish, and she, 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 like, my tongue just tied up, and Lakota, Chichangu Lakota. Um, and um, Edrigor is a tabletop role-playing game um, that I wrote and it uses the fate system as, as its foundational rule set. But the focus is, I mean, the big idea behind it is one of, of really taking the idea of survivance, right, and, and, and just kind of blowing it out the water. The, the fact that we're still here, you continue to be here, and by the, the fact that you're, that you're continuing to be here is an opportunity to keep changing things. Um, I like to call it a post-cataclysmic tribal horror game. Um, um, I think of it as the best bits of something like Pitch Black meets Princess Mononoke, kind of squished together, <laughs> tribal people um, trying to survive on a daily basis, rebuilding community, um, building um, larger uh, relational structures, while at the same time trying to survive all the horrors that come at them. Um, and the horrors themselves are kind of a, a uh, 
metaphor for just just the fight against depression and all the things that would try to kind of dismantle you while you're trying to um, um, build and maintain identity. That is super awesome. And and Jason, if we'll uh, we'll unmute Jason, and uh, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit about your background and tell us about your skins program. Uh, just Jason's looking for his webcam, so he'll have to unmute okay. himself. Uh, so when he gets it all set up, we'll bring him back into the feed. Or well, Jason will actually have to unmute himself. So well, I can come in an, as audio. We don't. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. yeah, we don't. Uh, we're we're having trouble with the video still. So. Um, so I'll do this, and then we'll go back to trying to troubleshoot it. Sure. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, so my background is uh, Cherokee, Hawaiian, and Samoan. Uh, I was born and raised in Northern California, and I run, uh, I co-direct a thing called Skins Workshops on Aboriginal Storytelling and Video Games. And what that is is it's sort of your, you know, your kind of standard uh, uh, sort of technical layer that you would find in a, in a typical video game. Uh, uh, workshop where you're teaching people sort of how to come in from zero and, and uh, you know sort of write and script and storyboard and do concept art and then modeling and animation and programming and all those sorts of things uh, but we do it within a context of storytelling from the community uh, so uh, and I want to give a shout out to, to Beth uh, because she was very central to the beginnings of the skins workshops and sort of helping us figure out how to do a proper video game workshop um, and so what we do is we bring in storytellers and mentors and elders from the community that we're working with, and we spend about the first third of the workshop just telling stories and talking about those stories and thinking about why stories are important, how stories work in the community, um, and then also sort of just mechanically, like what, what makes a good story, regardless of where it's coming from. And then the, uh, the participants, who are usually sort of late teenage, 20, in their 20s, they uh, we kind of hand it over to them and say, okay, we've been talking about story and telling lots of good stories. Now your job is to figure out how, uh, how to sort of tell a story through a video game. And then, so then they, usually what they do is they sort of pick a character from this story, like the stone giant and a protagonist from another story over here and a setting from another story over there. And then they remix it and sort of figure out how to uh, kind of make that story happen within uh, a game format, and then we we help them build it. That is super awesome. It's it's kind of fun because my wife, who's Japanese, was just telling some Japanese folk tales over dinner, so uh, the kids were really enthralled with that. And I know actually, Alan, you're really uh, keen on storytelling, so I want to I want to throw this next uh, question to you from our from our battery of questions. Uh, I want to talk about your design objective for uh, Edrigor and how that design objective was fulfilled by using the kind of RPG uh, mode. By, how was it fulfilled by, by this game? Hmm. Um, well, I think it was, in some ways it, it kind of slowly manifested, right? Um, my initial objective being, you know, just like everybody who's ever run a, a, a tabletop role-playing game was just to, to make a thing. And then over the years, as I was interacting with the, the uh, various kids in my youth programs and um, just kind of exploring life and exploring myself, the what started to happen was the need to express, right? There's like all these things I wanted to say and all these things I wasn't getting able to do, getting to do um, in the games I was playing. And so I, I found that what I wanted to do was create a, a space for people to 
explore explore lots of different ideas that they weren't stuck in the normal um, play loop of, uh, of you know fight kill collect XPs fight kill collect XPs and you know basically be a bunch of murder hobos. Um, and so I actually went through a large number of um, game systems uh, as, as I play with it. The, the, the game, believe it or not, originally started off as, um, I believe, Rollmaster, if you're familiar with that at all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, we, uh, people used to call it Chartmaster back in the day. Oh, my goodness. And it was crazy because that was that was such an uh, that was such the opposite of where I wound up. I mean, that, that game system was very much all about, you know, the, the brutality of the fights. And as much as I wanted to fight, I was more concerned about the struggle, um, you know, the, the narrative before and, and the narrative after, and, and I cared less and less about the actual fight itself. Um, and so I, I stumbled around, went, went, went through a bunch of different game systems that that suggested that they were more about story. And then as 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 I did so, I kept going towards systems that were less and less about particulars, and and more and more about giving you an interesting narrative moment. So there's a point when it was like a feng shui game. Um, there's a point. Um, there's a point when it was actually a Marvel superheroes face rip um, version of it. Um, and then I, I, one of my students pointed pointed me towards Fate. I actually had a Dread version, <laughs> where I would run pits of the game um, in Dread with people, and that was that was a little too open ended. But then a student pointed me back towards um, Fate, and I started playing with that. And, and I loved how this was a game that allowed me to build a character based on who you were and your identity. And by really focusing in on the aspects and what, what the aspects mean to, to, the, to a character within the world and how the aspects actually um, go on to help develop the world itself, um, that, 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 got, that became really, really tasty. And I, I got to dig down on it. Um, and then it just kind of came in layers, right? It was um, first was just kind of how do I make an interesting character? And then um, it became more about, well, how do I actually bring culture into this? How, how, how do I make it be something that's distinctive? Distinctly native, without getting caught up in you know native stereotypes and tropes, right? I didn't want I didn't want the game where everyone's running around with headdresses and being conquered. I wanted the game where people were there to explore um, a, a native thought process, um, to to see and just kind of play with the culture, but without necessarily being empowered to say that that somehow they were um, given the culture to do something with. Right, and so, 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 and once I had this this game system that was much more about um, these narrative pieces, it became much easier to say, "Here, I want to give you these things. Every time you play play the game, you have to apply this 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 perspective framework on um, how you're seeing things." And so, as as I've gone, it's funny because as as I've gone on to play the game with people since I wrote the game. There's even more of that that's become apparent. There's so much that I've learned now as I played it over and over again with with people of different ages, different people, people of different cultures that I would love to. Um, at some point, I'll, I'll, I'll revisit and get all that stuff into the game, um, so that it's all really present and forward facing. That's totally awesome. And let's go over to uh, to Liz. Same kind of question. What was your design objective and how was it fulfilled by the particular medium? And I wonder if you want to answer either using the gift of food or if you want to talk a little bit about survivance. Sure. Okay. So with the gift of food, really all the work that I do is very self-determined by communities. And so, and then also for myself and the kind of work that I'm doing, because I do a wide range of different kinds of games. 
So with the gift of food, the hope there was to pass on teachings about traditional foods, but also encourage community members to go out and look for them. And so part of the interesting aspect of this is that there are other ways to convey story beyond just actually telling stories. Although in the guidebook, there are stories which are protected by protocol. This is part of why this particular game is only played within the communities that developed it. There are traditional stories about foods, uh, which are only passed on during certain seasons as well as in certain contexts. So there are stories embedded in there and there are points where there are scenarios where you're called on to recall story, actually take part in storytelling yourself. So that's an interesting aspect of gameplay there. And, you know, in a sense, you can also create your own stories through the gameplay itself. So, you know, it's really funny because you're always given the option of trading or sharing or taking another player out with you when you go to gather particular foods. Well, I've seen situations where there's a community getting together and what's really beautiful about this is often they will bring traditional meals with them when they have these gameplay sessions. And so there was one instance where uh, some berries had been brought and of course, you know, there's berry pie and others there. So very nice to actually see berry pie with us <laughs> from the Northwest. So they actually had foods there with them. And one of the players was being a bit stingy. She wasn't uh, sharing when she had an opportunity to get elk. And so later on, after the game had finished, everyone was teasing her about how, well, since you didn't share with us the foods in the game, we're not going to share our foods with you during the actual eating of real foods in person. Of course, That's they're teasing. Yeah, they're teasing. Of course, they shared eventually. But like there was this sort of um, cultural enforcement of the protocol of generosity through the gameplay that then fed into the actual being together and sitting together and, and sharing in these foods together. So even though like in the game you could feasibly choose to be entirely selfish, there's going to be in the context of cultural relationships a way in which people will pick on each other for that. You know, if they're gonna essentially like not break the rules, but go against the rules and understandings of the community. Now in Survivance, certainly that's all about storytelling. There are three elders, including Woodrow Morrison Jr. And you actually do listen to them tell historical stories, traditional stories, personal stories, and family stories. Understanding that you know, very often I think what can happen in video games in particular is that there's an idea that games have to somehow be only based on what would be called legends or even, uh, you know, stories that go way back, creation stories. But in fact, there are also a myriad of other kinds of stories that we have and that we carry. And those can be just as interesting in games as well. So I think that those are the layers that happen through survivance is that you get to hear these stories and then you yourself are telling your own stories. They're referred to as acts of survivance. Now this is all inspired, of course, by Gerald Bisner, who is an Anishinaabe scholar and writer, and he is the one who writes very much so about the term survivance, which means both survival and endurance. There are a lot of different interpretations for it, but that's one of them. And so you actually take 
part in enacting survivance by creating what's referred to as acts of survivance. And it can be self-expression in any form. It could be a story, it could be a film, it could be an animation or a photo, for example, of something that you've created. There's been weaving has happened from it, beadwork, painting, photo collages, poems. There's an ongoing zine that is titled Survivance, which has poetry in it. And that came out of the game as a self-determined project that's ongoing and self-sufficient. And so there are many different forms of expression that have been elicited from this. And it's essentially saying that by creating ourselves, that can be a pathway to a better understanding our experiences and being on a path of healing from historical trauma that's been caused by colonization and genocide. Excellent. So I, now let's pass it on. Same kind of question to, to Jason your design objectives, but in, in your case, you're working with communities and you chose to use the medium of, of computer game design. How does that serve your, your objective within the communities? And maybe you want to bring, bring in uh, Aboriginal territory and uh, into, the, uh, into the question. Yeah, so that's a good place to start is with, with Aboriginal Territories and Cyberspace, or Abtech, which we started in 2000, uh, 2006. And the goal of Abtech was to sort of look at how um, Indigenous communities and individuals were using digital media um, in all sorts of different ways. But a big way was, of course, you know, sort of telling their story uh, either directly as storytellers or as artists. And so when we first started thinking about how do we do that, we got a bunch of people together, including Beth, um, to brain do a bunch of brainstorming over a couple of years to try to figure that out. And one of the things that we, you know, kind of quickly came to was, you know, well, we need to train people, right? So one of the reasons why there aren't that many indigenous uh, sort of digital media creators is that uh, not many people have been uh, given the opportunity to, to get a hold of the technology and learn how to use it. And then we sort of quickly got to, well, if we're going to train people, we might as well start, you know, young <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, Oh, I think we're we're losing Jason. Uh oh, losing me? Oh, now you're coming back in. Oh my goodness, I'm the problem child today. Uh, hold on a second. So um, the and then okay, so if we're gonna do youth. You know what is gonna what's gonna get them get them to come and hang out with us? You know, it's uh, you know just going out and saying, hey, we're gonna learn to teach a bunch of technical skills. Uh, didn't seem like maybe the best way to, to sort of get people to go, yay, I want to do that. And, uh, you know, because of Beth and because of a couple other people that we had in the room who had a lot of experience with games and doing games workshops, we got to the, we got to the point of thinking, okay, well, maybe we could build an interesting video game workshop around, uh, you know, around centering stories from, from the communities and, and sort of more importantly, centering the stories that the youth want to, that the youth want to tell. Um, and that's something that is kind of often comes up and whenever we're thinking about the workshop and talking about the workshop is, you know, people say, well, you know, what if they decide to, you know, what if they decide to make a game that's Grand Theft Res? You know, something that's like violent and maybe misogynist or, you know, something that's like a lot of the AAA games out there, you know, because that's what they play and that's what they like. And, um, you know, and we've said pretty consistently, we've had a lot of debate about it, particularly in the early days, but we said pretty consistently, you know, we can't sort of build this whole workshop around the idea that we're bringing them in to empower them to express themselves 
And then the next moment, turn around and say, well, but there's only certain kinds of games that you can make that's okay. Um, and that served us really well. I mean, we've actually never had to confront a group of students who wanted to create games like that. You know, so it's never really been put to test. But I think part of it is, is actually because we've created an environment where we've really said, look, we're here to facilitate what it is that you want to say. You know, and it turns out that you know, they have lots of sing things to say about their culture. Um, and I think it's, one, it's a place where they don't necessarily get much of where they're able to really kind of take the stories and kind of tell them in their way. Uh, because there's such an emphasis in the community, which, you know, I think it's, it's, it's coming from a, a good place, right? but there's, there's a big emphasis on, you know, preserving the stories and retelling the stories as our ancestors have told them so that we keep that knowledge and we keep that understanding. And we respect that and we want that to continue. But we also think that there's a huge place for uh, telling new stories, certainly, or even evolving some of those stories. You know, one of the elders we work with, you know, she says, you know, look, you know, 500 years ago, it was this story that we're, I'm telling you right now was somebody sitting down and telling a story, right? And, uh, and now 500 years on, we're still telling that story. You know, we could tell a story today that 500 years from now is a story that they tell. That's how culture works, and we have to be participants in it. And, um, and getting them in, giving them with the, the, the chance to, to design a video game seems to be a very effective way of, um, you know, of getting them excited to be there, I mean, particularly since the workshops, the big workshops we do are super intense. It's three weeks, um, nine to five every day, and we're we're going hard, really hard. And um, you know, and at the end of it, we want a playable level. So it's a lot of work. It's a big commitment. People have kids. People have uh, have jobs. So um, I I feel pretty happy that we've managed to retain everybody each time. And I think it's because you know it's because they're telling the story that they want to tell. So um, I uh, had a, a question that occurred to me uh, as you were all talking, which is that you've all kind of worked with um, very different mediums, but you all uh, share this approach to trying to bring out sort of important storytelling elements of the of the culture um, through your different. But you've but you've used different mediums. Some of you have used role playing games. Elizabeth has used both board games and video games. Um, and you were just talking about designing video games with the community. I'm wondering if you could um, reflect on and discuss some of the, both the challenges and the advantages of different gaming mediums for uh, telling these kinds of stories and bringing to light these kinds of um, elements of the culture. So who wants to take that question first? Right. Do you want me to just because it's Go a ahead. Yeah. I, I My work probably has the most difference between each form. So, um, you know, I think a lot of what Brenda Romero says when she talks about the mechanic is the message. And so for me, there has to be reciprocity between what we're using to convey the message and what the message is. And so that's why I tend to really bounce around in terms of what I'm working on. And with the board game, what was interesting about the gift of food was the community had actually been trying to work with uh, a college that had a game program and they were supposed to make a video game and it just wasn't working out really well. 
And really the reason came down to when I actually went and talked to the community members, they were saying we don't have the computers in our classrooms or in our community centers and we don't have consoles. And so you're basically telling us that you got a grant to make something we're never going to be able to use. So nobody's mm -hmm. really invested. So that's a huge problem, right? And I know understanding that I've had a disconnect from internet access at points in my life. So why would I even myself want to be able to create something that I can't even play? So one of the advantages of working with paper games is the ability to deploy them in a different kind of way where they can be kept in community centers and they can also create uh, or initiate intergenerational gameplay right on the spot, you know, so you can have grandparents with grandchildren and they're all in the same space and it's something that happens fluidly, right? So that's a great advantage to paper games. Uh, on the video game end, then you have the ability of mobile games to have a wider distribution. And I think that part of the interesting process here then is making sure that we're balancing accessibility with what it is that we're creating. And I know that when um, Alan Turner was working on Edgebore, a lot of that was about getting a game, an alternative to Dungeons and Dragons and to the kind of experiences that happen that are very colonial during that gameplay to youth in community setters, settings, you know, community settings. So I think that there's a wide range of abilities there that come and it's really about respecting and working with that particular form of game towards our advantage. That sounds awesome. And I, when, when I hear storytelling, I, I've seen storytelling all over Alan's profile. And I kind of <laughs> wanted to, I wanted to reveal a secret that some of the audience may not know is that Alan, you worked on Myth 2, didn't you? I, I was early Bungie. Yeah, I came in as production, I was production and support. Um, I, I, I came in there just, just after Marathon 2 was shipped for the PC. And I was there uh, for actually Marathon 2 for PC and Myth 1 and then on to Myth 2 and only in a bunch of stuff. And then so moved on. So I've been all over the place. I've worked there for it. So talking about storytelling, you can kind yeah. of bring in what, you know, most people saw in Myth was an extremely, you know, uh, immersive world. And so tell us, tell us a little bit about that, bringing in your different mediums. So I, I think something to be, to be mindful of when you're trying to build, uh, do any kind of world building, is that the medium, the medium and the type of game you're making typically come with with a certain amount of baggage, right? There's there's a cultural baggage in, in terms of expectations of play, expectations of time, the amount of commitment people are willing to put into something, um, and so I, I you know I, I poked around. So when when I was working at Bungie, I was really enamored of of the uh, all the stuff that we were putting into Myth uh, Myth the Fallen Lords and how big that world was growing. Um, and how with, um, with, within that um, very contained space, there seemed to be you know, this unlimited storytelling to, to, to be had, even though the story that was being told was a very, very linear uh, experience. Um, and I always wanted to figure out a way to do that um, with you know, the things that felt important to me. Um, and what I found was that a lot of the things that I felt were important to me were um, typically things that, that, that didn't go over so well in a very straightforward action-driven um, video game. It, it was, uh, they, they, you couldn't get people to stop and pay attention to them, or you couldn't 
um, show them without um, getting, you know, for becoming too expensive. One of the things I love about tabletop role-playing games as a storytelling medium is that you have the world's greatest rendering engine, right? You've got other people's imaginations, and we're all projecting um, on the table in that space, and, and eventually we're all coming, um, getting on the same page, more or less. You know, we, we all know the event, the event is happening, but everyone kind of has their own slightly different perspective of what's happening. And, and I think that's ultimately a very sexy way of doing storytelling because that's how storytelling works, right? When you've done traditional stand-up storytelling and you've talked to a group of, of adults and kids, everyone walks away from your story with their own different taste of what that story was. They, they know the particulars. They, 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 uh, they know how it went from beginning to end, but what characters look like, why characters are doing things, everyone has their own take on it. And that kind of feeds, you know, the, the ever-changing um, aspects, you know, that shape-changing power that sh storytelling has, it keeps it alive. Um, I think something also worth uh, considering is that as we go from different medium, media uh, and different types of game platforms, there are different expectations of, about the amount of storytelling you can give to people, like in mobile games. So I, 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 sh I should um, preface that with the fact that I'm, I'm doing lots of, of, of side work working on different tabletop and, and, and video game things. I'm currently doing some stuff for Onyx Path, uh, working on Scion and Hunter the Vigil, um, but I'm, I'm also doing some, some video game mobile writing. And one of the things that's, that's interesting is that, um, especially going into the mobile world, is that there's such a drive to get people to click, <laughs> click through things. And so, it's, so getting people to, to stop and have the expectation that they're going to dig in and read lots of information is, is just unreasonable, right? So, so finding ways to give people these tasty bits that will linger in their head for all, and then they'll come back and want to dig of their own accord and, and deeper spaces. That's a lot harder um, to, to do in the mobile space than it is in, in the tabletop um, um, desktop computer, right? Where um, the, the expectations people are sitting down for a committed engagement with uh, with narrative. Um, so you know, phones, ta tablets—that's a different world. Um, different kind of storytelling is needed there. Um, tabletop, and then and then consoles. Consoles have a, a bigger commitment um, from people, but um, but then there's also the expectation that you're going to have a lot more um, um, cross-player, uh, multiplayer experiences. So you have to make sure that whatever multiplayer world building and storytelling you're doing does not break down um, the you know that 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 foundational. Um, storytelling that you're, that you're trying to build. Everything needs to, you know, it's all related, right? Everything needs to relate to each other, support each other, and all, all the mechanics, all the actions in each of those sections should, should support this greater experience. Uh, yeah, that, that's um, actually really interesting to to hear you to hear you discuss and describe. Um, just like a random thing to add in here because uh, from, from personal um, recent things. So I've been very obsessed with Dark Souls lately, in part because of the cohesive storytelling that the, yeah. the designers of that game have managed to, to bring out. Um, and a lot of what you were just saying there sort of resonates really well with what I've fallen in love with about, uh, about those games. Um, so uh, just to transition to something slightly different, um, we've got a question from our, uh, our audience um, that I'd like to uh, put to you, Alan, and then uh, after that, uh, Jason. Um, uh, so Jonathan Lavelle was asking, how, how do you make space for indigenous game design within colonized spaces? Hmm. That's an interesting question. So um, I think making space for them is, is 
first and foremost, presuming that they don't have to exist within the colonized expectations, right? So one of the, so there's two things there. So one, one of them is that, right? So that, so when, when I look at all the tabletop RPGs out there that, that, that try to touch on um, indigenous um, experiences, um, without exception, they all seem to revolve around this idea that the native peoples at some point were going to be conquered by the invaders, right? So they're always being set up for a fall, they're always victims, um, and there's no place to explore that not being part of their narrative. Um, that's not part of everybody's narrative, even though it's 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 part of the experience. Um, it's not the only the only thing that defines the, the stories that we're that we're telling, um, where they've been, where they're going, and so uh, one reaching out to, to a native person, um, or an, an indigenous person, or so, so, or so someone who has lived this world that, that you're that you're trying to give access to, um, have them be the voice. You know, ha let, let let them tell you what's what's important from the inside, and then that's where you can begin to build um, that experience around. If you're if you're looking at the, if you're engaging those indigenous voices from the point of view of we want to make space for you in in, in our thing, and which you have to fit with, with within these these contexts, um, that makes it really really hard. It's, and it's a huge turnoff because I I have to as an indigenous person um, curtail my thoughts to a certain extent, um, uh, and, and I wind up making my culture kind of fit within your stereotypes even when I'm trying not to. Um, so just just allowing them um the the space to uh, allowing us the space to um just express um put down concepts if you're building a game that, that that's the, for instance a, a a fighting game um let figure out a way to let them talk about what's important um in in, in terms of combat from 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 this indigenous point of view if you're building something that's a romance game or a uh, um a social game again look at what's important from from within the context of the people that, that 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 you're trying to give access to, as opposed to telling them what's what's important, what you want them to write write about. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a that's a really good answer, um, and it's really helpful too from the you know, from a game design perspective. It gives some strategies for approaching this kind of a um, of design uh, goal. Right, and, and I'd also add you know a lot of room for variation. That is not all one's perspective. Right, so it's it's you know it's it's akin to me like if if I were to uh, I wanted to engage like you know like a queer a queer perspective, I wouldn't just go to a a single type of of queer person. I would reach out to a range of people to to get that entire range of what what that experience is, and if and then allow space for that for that range to be. Otherwise, I'm 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 back in that position where one person has to be the representative of everybody, and it's already skewed. Right, they have to teach, and they, and again, they're teaching what they may not know. So, giving range, just, and you know, you you look you look at most tabletop role playing games when you talk, when you talk about fantasy. There's this huge range of of Euro types, <laughs> right? Um, and and typically, when, when they reach out to other ethnic groups, there's one representation of that ethnic group as a special case, right? There are always edge cases, and special cases. Um, they've been discovered. They're waiting to be discovered. Um, they've got, you know, the dingus. They're they're a resource that needs to be mined, but they're rarely just, you know, people in and of their own right who have their own set of range as well as the the that foundational your range that that uh, people are typically writing from. Yeah. 
Go. Oh, I remember D and D Oriental Adventures very well. Oh my God! Just the name. <laughs> I know, right? It was. It was. It was. It was kind of horrible. Kind of horrible. I actually remember coming back from Japan and see, and playing D and D and seeing that rule book, and I'm like, Jesus, guys, what are you doing? Yeah, I don't anyway. know. Um, Jesse, you 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 wanted to pose that question back to Jason. Yeah. That? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, uh, yeah, just to, to reiterate the question. So that, can we all now hear my dogs barking? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'll have our own children, I guess. Um, all right. So I'm just going to quickly say the question and then mute myself so this quiets down. Uh, just to remind everybody where we were. Uh, so, Jason, how do you make space for indigenous game design in colonized spaces? Okay. Uh, so, I, you know, I think uh, I kind of kind of think Alan, you know, covered a lot of a lot of the the base there, you know, very well. Um, I think you know, reiterating that you know, indigenous bodies are important. Uh, so, you know, getting indigenous bodies into the process, the, the game design process, as early as possible, you know, really preferably at the concept stage. <laughs> like at the stage of, you know, is this, uh, is this going to be interesting, you know, to indigenous people, right? So if you're going to be telling a story that has, you know, indigenous characters in it, then really you have to be thinking as well, like, okay, are we telling a story that indigenous people might be interested in? Um, now, at the same time, you know, I go going back to Alan's comment about, you know, having one body or having kind of a, uh, a, a generic body, you know, one of the big flags that gets raised when people come to us because they want to work with us or, you know, do various things with us is actually, is actually around that issue of, you know, if they come to us and say, hey, look, we want, we want to have an indigenous element to X, you know, we're kind of like, hmm. Well, you know, I, there's, I'm not really sure what an indigenous element might be. I can think about what a Cherokee element might be or a Mohawk element or a Lakota or Anishinaabe element um, uh, because that's where you're going to have to start, right? You can't start at this sort of general indigenous things. Like we talk about kind of general indigenous things and there is a conversation that you can have there that is productive, but when you're actually getting down to the details of making something, you can't make something from a... Uh, I would argue from an indigenous perspective, right? You can make it from a perspective of a Lakota person or a Hawaiian person or something like that. And so that's a big piece of education that often has to be done. Um, you know, frankly, we've gotten to the point where we just don't do that education anymore um, because it's very tiring and it sucks up a lot of our time. Um, and so, you know, there's a certain amount that's incumbent upon non-Indigenous people who want to work with Indigenous characters and stories and things like that to do some just basic background reading and research so they understand something beyond the really tired stereotypes that they probably got fed um, in their sort of primary and secondary and even college education. Um, and, you know, at that point they can begin, I think, to have a productive conversations to with Indigenous people who might very well want to collaborate and are interested and working with non-Indigenous people on lots of different kinds of projects. Um, I also think that part of it for me about the kind of, you know, uh, how, do we, how do we deal with these colonized spaces, in a way that's why Abtec, Aboriginal Territories and Cyberspace was really set up, was like, okay, how do we, how do we inhabit it, how do we inhabit cyberspace in a way that reflects uh, who we are as Indigenous people? 
and as indigenous communities. And uh, there's lots of different ways to do it. The big way is you get indigenous people making stuff and filling those spaces up with the work that they create. Um, you also take a very critical approach to the medium that you know you don't accept it as given. You try to understand something about its uh, its history, and I think a lot of indigenous people are already coming from that critical position because they're, you know, they've had to contend with um, you know settler history, and they are you know I think they're aware from a very early age that it's you know full of lies, and they're also aware that. Um, you know, there's a lot of technological apparatus that has been developed that has been developed to control indigenous people. Um, and so I think a lot of us come into these technologies with that very skeptical stance. And I think that it's a skeptical stance that the whole industry would do better uh, taking on um, and more deeply anyways. Uh, so, you know, for us, again, part of the people that we do agree to collaborate with are people who are coming with that critical stance. Right, they're coming in with a like a sense of like, okay, you know, we want to do something sort of interesting and, and maybe experimental here, and part of it's about kind of really questioning what the medium is about and what the, what is going on with the technology. Great answer, good answer. Um, so it, just to kind of roll with that a little bit about collaboration, oftentimes in game design, we're not just making the game; we're also providing some artistic cover to all of that. And uh, Shem Phillips, who, by the way, is up for uh, Spiel de Jahr, uh, he got nominated for his game uh, Raiders of the North Sea, I believe. That's also being picked up by Renegade Games. So wonderful uh, game. But Shem is asking, what about choosing artists? If you were to be designing a game that was culturally sensitive, would you recommend working with an artist who is of that culture to avoid misrepresentation? Or is there room for artists that are not of that culture to give their take on that culture without it being appropriation? Jason, I'm going to bring that back to you because you haven't talked much today. So, <laughs> You know, that's a, it's a tough one. Uh, it we, is. We struggle, we struggle with, um, you know, when we're doing our work because, you know, I teach at a university. Uh, so most of the work that we do is done uh, in conjunction with with uh, research assistants who are students, um, you know, and as you can imagine, you know, not many of them are are indigenous, and so we've had to we we wrestle with we don't I don't think we wrestle I think we kind of come to a good place and you know part of what we say and this is actually something I was thinking I should have said in the previous answer right is um, you know part of our position is you know these projects are indigenous determined mm -hmm. right. So that means that the people who are in control of making the decisions about what this thing is going to be are indigenous people. And that the fact that, for instance, you know, over half my team might be non-indigenous um, certainly, you know, matters uh, in the sense that it matters how we manage that and what sorts of conversations and education and exchanges and so forth that we have with them. Um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't change the fact that the thing that comes out at the end whether it's a game or artwork, as me and my partner Scavanati are, are artists, um, you know that that is an indigenous game, um, and so I, I think that you know the next step that we have to get to from you know let's include some indigenous voices is you know what we got to hand over some control, some creative control to those indigenous voices, not just solicit their opinion or their advice or even their artwork, right? But actually hand over some control at least over what gets made and how. 
Now, having said that, we have found it's, it's, it has not been very successful, particularly on the kind of say creative side, so the, the kind of the art making side, but even on the story development side as well, having non-Indigenous people do those things. And, and it's a heartbreaker sometimes because these non-Indigenous people are incredibly talented and they're great people. But there's a, you know, what I was saying earlier about, you know, Indigenous people coming into these things with a kind of a built-in uh, suspicion of the technology and the systems that are being used. Uh, there's also a bunch of kind of stuff that comes built in or comes through experience growing up that way that's very difficult to communicate uh, to people. And it makes a big difference in terms of the artwork they create. Um, and, you know, it's not, I don't think it's absolute by any means. I think that there are, are you know, we've worked with people for years now who, you know, I feel comfortable saying, okay, look, we need something, that, you know, you, you know, you need to give us a character that looks like this, is coming from this community, and, you know, needs to express this. And, you know, there's a couple of them that I, I feel like we could come up with something, but it would be iterations. Like, it really takes really strong art direction to make it go in the right direction. Um, but it's, it's very challenging, and it's certainly something you cannot do just by hiring somebody off the street and saying, oh, okay, you know, here, you know, come on in, we have this character, even if you've sort of fully fleshed the character out in a respectful way. Um, it's not, our experiences is not necessarily going to often go in the direction that you need to go. It's just because people are so full of assumptions, you know, and stereotypes, and it's very difficult it's very difficult to burn through those um, within a, you know, a tight time frame that you often see with production, right? So that's why I was saying with people that we've been working with for a while, or you know, students that have been working in my lab for two or three years on multiple projects with us, you know, they have a, they have a pretty good grounding at that point. Um, but it's, uh, it's a very tricky thing and, and something that I would definitely be careful about. And you know, honestly, the real answer is go and find an indigenous designer, right? We're just working on a list. There was a list of Beth was part of this, a list of uh, Canadian indigenous designers that went up on Facebook, um, like a big long sort of conversation about that a couple weeks ago. And so we're actually in the lab right now, we're going through that list and trying to make a big directory out of that. Um, because even for me, I, you know, I teach in design and I'm indigenous and I know lots of peeps, but I, I have difficulty finding indigenous designers. Indigenous artists, for me, are much easier to find, right? But indigenous designers are challenging. So, you know, part of that is making those people visible so they can be brought into these things. That's so cool. And, and talking about uh, art, I just wanted to shout out a little bit. Uh, I saw on Elizabeth Survivant's page, uh, Mark Gowdy, who's a, a Coast Salish artist who I've, I've followed for a little while, and his kind of blending of uh, digital media and Salish designs. Really, really cool. You should check him out. I think Sen's got them up on the screen there. But uh, I wanted to go back to the comment, the mechanic is the message, which is, again, from Brenda Romero. Uh, and thank you, Elizabeth, for, for telling me where that came from, because as soon as I read it, my, my entire body just kind of melted. It was, it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing to say. And we like to talk about experiential design on, on this show and how you choose your mechanics to fit the experience you're trying to create. So, and naming any of your games or all of your games, how do you pick those mechanics 
and what's the message you're trying to get across and how do you how do you put the two together sure i think this routes back into the question about how do you deal with being in colonial spaces so there are times where I mean, I get frustrated because ideally I would love to have a game engine that can express physics as I understand it, which is closest to quantum physics. So, you know, hopefully there will become that point, but very often it's that we need to create from the code up, or in the case of Edrigor, it's understanding, finding a system that is fluid enough to be supportive of our ways of expressing, right? So in my work, what I do is I play with design and also with mechanics in ways that I, th I just think up. And I'm not really trying to do it on purpose. It's just that it ends up being sort of alternative. And then this is where the design aspect comes in. I'm also an artist and a writer, but from a design standpoint, I very often find that I just think in particular ways. So... Uh, in Honor Water, you are singing as the gameplay. That is the gameplay you're learning, and you're singing along with uh, Anishinaabe water songs. And that was influenced in terms of the design by elders because they did not want a system that had points or a way to judge you around your singing, right? So it was very important that that not be the emphasis in that particular game. So that's one way in which design and mechanics can come through. Uh, in other games, I can think of uh, We Sing for Healing is a musical choose your own adventure game. So part of it is that yes, you could just click through and read the text, but ideally if you were really to fully experience the game, you sit and you listen to the complete tracks that are by Exquisite Ghost, who is also an indigenous musician. And that's one piece for me is like, yeah, there are artists, but I believe too that there are other ways to in involve indigenous creatives like musicians. There are so many people in music and so much we can bring in with sound effects that are very genuine. And so that's one thing that I try to do. And I also did in Invaders, which of course is a play on, you can guess, the classic arcade game Space Invaders. There was something that I did in there to convey a message, uh, which is that there's no point system for how you see your lives. Uh, in fact, there's a photo which comes from a riff, a mixed media art piece uh, done by Stephen Paul Judd, where there are uh, true native warriors and they're shooting up at the, you know, 8-bit characters from Space Invaders. And it's a commentary on what does that term even mean, a space invader or to invade one space. So, and aliens coming in and just shooting at you, right? So, one of the things about this game is that when the characters are shooting their arrows up, I got players confused because they were like, how come these guys that are behind me aren't getting my back? Is that a power-up? At some point, are they going to help and they're going to start shooting arrows too? Like, what's up with these characters that are down here? Well... The moment you get hit, you realize you, you, you lose one of those photoreal characters, which are real people. And that's intended to reflect that when you lose a life, you lose a life. You know, during the process of war and colonization, 
people were lost. You know, there is no regeneration. There's no like point value system of, oh, you get three tries and then it's game over. No, like real, real people in real lives. And so that was one play that happened through there. Now, uh, the fourth get coming game, I see they're asking me about also Thunderbird Strike. So I'll jump into here. So, okay, so the forthcoming game that I'm working on is titled Thunderbird Strike, and it's a 2D side-scroller where you're playing as a Thunderbird and you're striking lightning down at mining company buildings and the big giant mining trucks. And you're just obliterating them. Alan Turner and I had conversations with this game in the very beginning because he was reflecting to me how in my choice of mechanics, he's like, well, you've got to have something that's attacking you too, or you've got to have some kind of balance here. And ultimately, because I can be an artist when I'm approaching this game, I was like, actually, I really don't care. You're always going to win. <laughs> it's just a matter of how much you win. Nobody's going to come and shoot at you. There's no obstacle that you're really facing off against. But it is a balance. You have to choose between how much destruction and how much restoration you're doing because your lightning can also revive animals. So there are the bones of buffalo, the bones of caribou and the bones of wolves that are scattered amongst also these buildings and so you're making choices as you go along because essentially you have an effectively stamina in the lightning that you can choose choose to use so you're choosing between what are you going to do bring forth activation of life or are you going to destroy and there are different point value systems for these choices that you make along the way so that game is forthcoming. The funny thing about working on that was, is I've been working with coders. I've done a little bit of that, and then I've had two programmers, Aubrey Jane Scott and then Adrian Cheater, helping me on this. And everyone who has worked on it, their inclination is to autom automatically, even though I write it out in the design very clearly, go, they always go left to right. And... Like that's the first line in the game design document is it go right to left because of the orientation of how it is supposed to unfold as a story and it's essentially opposite way. So there are interesting aspects that you can just incorporate into design to play with and effectively offer new experiences through design that can speak more to, I suppose, in my case, uh, my, my way of viewing the world, which comes from the way I was raised and my family and, you know, my aunties and from community members and elders and storytellers. And that's awesome, because I know you have to go, I'm gonna kind of bring up the next question. And sure. um, so what, this is kind of in general, what does a game do that other media can't for you? That's totally like a, a three-minute three question. <laughs> <laughs> What's brilliant to me about at least digital games is that I can combine code with design, with art, with sound, all in one interactive experience. And I can also employ player agency and self-determination so that they bring those experiences with them in a unique way. Now, this is the con in the context that I also make art for and write comics, uh, and I also write comics that other artists have contributed to. I also do experimental stop-motion animations, 
I work in transmedia. So I have a wide range of experience. And what ends up happening is whatever message is intended to convey or story or experience, I really go, oh, this is better for a comic or, oh, this is better for a game. And what always pulls at me to make something into a game is the player's role. Now, what's interesting about my work that I've noticed, and I don't know that this will always be true, but I've done something very different from what happens very often in the skins workshops. Youth will tend to have, it's essentially like a first-person shooter uh, where they have a bow or, you know, they very clearly have a character and you as the player very clearly are a character and they flesh out who that player character is in a lot of these games. In a lot of youth workshops, that tends to happen. And I want to say that so far in my work, and, I, and again, like I'm not aware that I'm doing this necessarily, but I think it leans more towards what's happening with Edrigor and Alan's work in tabletop role-playing games, which is I'm trying to leave room for one to put themselves fully into that role and imagine themselves in that space. And so I have not so far actually depicted a player character in the game's that I've worked on. There's no, there's no real, you know, there's no art that's like, okay, this is the player character. It's always just you going into an experience and then playing through the game and imagining yourself in that. And so I think that's where, you know, this, the paper games and uh, digital games and those experiences can inform one another and fluidly move back and forth. Thank you very much for that. And thank you for, for being here. I know you've been here before, but uh, it's been wonderful. It's been an honor to have you, and thank you very much. Thank you. And it was so great to get a chance to hang out with both Alan and with Jason, and I'm looking forward to being able to see you guys again when I get to. So awesome. Yeah, it's be awesome. Yeah, Bama Pete. See you later. Okay. Okay, and so we're gonna go back to Alan here, and but before I before I go into it, because I, this is kind of being in the back of my head, I keep on thinking of like the perfect genre of settler game. What's the perfect genre of settler game? And I keep on settling on four X. So say it with me: explore, explore, <laughs> exploit, expand, exterminate, exterminate. Yeah. Uh, so when we're talking about a genre, and now I'm, I'm actually going to just rep uh, for a second a 4X game in which you can win without fighting, and that is Endless Space. Mm -hmm. oh, Endless, yeah. Endless Space 2 just came out. But uh, so like the, the one 4X game that you can actually win without, without fighting. So they eliminate several of the Xs, and it's still really fun. Uh, but when you talk I mean, about... You can choose to eliminate some of the you Xs. You can choose to eliminate. I never do. That anyway. <laughs> And this is, this is from, the, from a guy who studied military strategy at school, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to kind of go back to the mechanic is the message, because if you're talking about a game where basically, okay, the entire intent is to explore, expand, exploit, and exterminate, you're going to have a certain type of experience. In your case, Alan, we'll come back to the mechanic is the message, and what mechanics did you choose in your game to make that world separate from... Uh, the original worlds you're talking about with destruction and killing and gore and, and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. In terms of mechanics, I'm not sure if that was so much a mechanics issue as much as it was an expectation setting, an appetite setting issue with the narrative that's up front. Um, but I guess the focus in on 
the importance of aspects in um, Edugore and in Fate, the idea that you are, you're always building relationships. Right? And, we, and there's that the whole idea, especially within the culture tradition of Mutaku um, Yayasin and, and this, you know, this concept that we're all related to everything, right? And there's nothing that I do that doesn't affect you, nothing that you do that doesn't affect me. Um, and weaving that into the whole process of even making a character. So in, um, and I think where that stands out the most is in, um, if, you've, if you've ever played a Fate game, there's typically a, a process where you, when you're making characters, you have these phases, right? Um, and, and you kind of, each phase you talk about a, a cool thing, and for that cool thing, you come up with an aspect, you have a list of aspects when you're all said and done. And what I did was I went back and I took this idea of phases and I connected it to an actual traditional thing, which is um, the, the winter counts that we have, right? And in winter counts in the culture tradition, they're basically these pictographic calendars. Um, and what's neat is that they, they already have this, this kind of concept where there is this, you know, this idea that over the course of a year, something, something has happened. There's something very significant that has happened within the course of that year. And you'll name the year kind of um, poetically after that significant event. You know, so a, a year where there was, you know, lots of babies born might be, you know, the, the winter of of, um, of new laughter or something, right? So, they, so there are like these, there's these ideas. And so when you're making your character, um, rather than just kind of being focused on you, um, which we focus on you within the context of what's happening around you. And so it's a, hey, there's this event that's happening, and then I want you to name the year after that event. So you have to stop and think about, well, what does this mean? Um, within the context of me and and, and and the space of me. And you name that thing. And then after you've named that thing, you get to come back and pull an aspect out of that. And what's important about that is that those winters, I, I really kind of drilled into this whole idea of, of your, your narrative is important. And so those winters get put off to the side. And what they become, um, like, have you ever, if you ever watched an episode of Naruto? Yeah. Um, or you, 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 uh, you like read the Spider-Man comic book, there's invariably this point where you know the characters, their back is up against the wall, and with and 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 any good anime or any comic book, when your back is up against the wall, what do you do? You soliloquy, <laughs> right? You talk about where you have been and how you can't back down because you've been somewhere and you've done some things. And so the winter has become that thing, right? It it it, it ties us all together so that when we're finished making all of our winters, we have this 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 personal history of the group. That, that is a calendar. You can say, hey, I, I was alive during that time. These things happened. But um, more importantly, they, they, they give you these props for your soliloquies. And so you can burn a winter and change a scene significantly, but you won't have access to that winter for a while, right? It, it won't, but it's a memory that is strong in you, and it goes above and beyond the concept of a basic aspect. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a really, really, really powerful thing. And so in the course of, of Edrigor, as opposed to your traditional fate game, I give you lots of aspects. I'm not, and, and this 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 parallels the um, the thing that Elizabeth was talking about with uh, Thunderbird Bird Strike, where I'm less concerned about you dying. I don't. I'm not really concerned that you are going to be broken over the course of the game. I want you to survive, and so I want to give you lots of story that you can talk about and that you can connect to other people's stories and always be able to talk about your character in terms of story and narrative and events and, and where you connect to everything first, and skills, and numbers, and all that stuff is always secondary. Hmm. Very cool, very very cool. Uh, Jesse, where are we taking this? Um, I don't know. Where to go. Okay. Uh, 
sorry. Uh, uh, so it's the same same question actually over to Jason. Um, could uh, reflect a bit on um, the relationship between um, mechanics and message, specifically as it pertains to creating video games, um, in particular with the the kinds of projects that you've worked on. Um, and I'm also being strongly encouraged to get you to reflect on Never Alone. Um, and woo, woo, <laughs> oh, that's really important to add. Uh, you hit every mark, man. Ooh, awesome. Ooh, ooh. Uh, so, so it's it is really too bad Beth isn't here for both both of the things that I'm gonna I'm gonna say. But you know, because Beth and I have a have a long running conversation about mechanics mm. and what indigenous mechanics might be, what indigenous gameplay might be, um, and uh, um, you know, so with our workshops, one of the things. And, and the reason why you have these conversations, part of it anyways, is because in our workshops, we have to really kind of balance out what it is that we're trying to accomplish and sort of try to stay focused on what we want to accomplish. Uh, because, and this goes to the Grand Theft, what I was saying about Grand Theft Res, but it's also true in terms of, um, you know, really trying to kind of change up the game, the game language. Um, and that is that it's, there's only so many variables you can push on at once. And so in our workshops, you know, the big thing that we're pushing on is getting these kids in the room to learn some great technical skills and connect those technical skills, skills to their community so that they don't see those things as being separate, which is, a, which is a, a challenge, I think, within the indigenous community where there's a lot of pressure to, you know, to, to, to think of, you know, being truly native means being how we were, you know, 500 years ago or 200 years ago. Um, and part of our argument that we were making through the workshops is, well, to be truly native is, you know, to be native now and to understand your history, but also be looking towards the future and where you're going to go. And so, so a lot of our energy is expended on that. And so, and the kids, when they come in, they want to make a video game. They don't want to make an experimental video game, right? They're, they're, they're mostly, they're too young for that. Um, you know, like I said, they're late teens and their twenties. And so what they're super excited about is they want to make a video game that's fun to play and that they can give to their friends and their friends and be like, oh, that's really cool and fun. Um, and so we don't spend a lot of time trying to push them in, in any overt way to say, have indigenous gameplay or indigenous mechanics. So it comes up uh, in some ways, but it's not really around mechanics, right? So as Beth mentioned, the mechanics in the games that they make are pretty, are pretty conventional because of that, because there's not a lot of push from us to make them unconventional because we're worried about other things and, you know, sort of moving the needle on other things, you know, but in terms of the story, they're very, they're very indigenous, right? They're very rooted in the local community and both old stories and new stories that they want to tell. Um, and so we're super happy about that. And we're also super happy that there's people like Alan, you know, who, you know, I, you know, having sat through two games play sessions with Alan, you know, I think, seeing what he did with the mechanics there and what he was just talking about is actually probably the clearest example I know of, of really trying to think about, well, what does it mean, what does it mean to have a different sort of kind of way of playing this game and elements that support that different way of playing this game that, um, that resonates, you know, with him as an indigenous creator and sort of what he sees in his community. Um, you know, and I think also the work that Beth is doing in terms of really making you know, making games that are about, uh, aren't necessarily about teaching people how to make full-on video games, but they're about, uh, you know, teaching about something that's of importance 
something cultural that's of importance to the to the community. I'm going to put this screen up right now. Uh, hopefully you can hear me as I'm putting the screen up. Yes. Dylan really, really wanted to Never Alone and say woo a lot. Woo! <laughs> um, tell us about Never Alone and um, why, is it, why is this an important thing? Jason. Yeah, this is, again, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think <laughs> that... Hot topic. Yeah, I think that, you know, the thing that's really important about it is that it's, uh, you know, a game that was, uh, you know, was... You know the the, the or sort of the project sort of originated within a community, within a, a you know an indigenous community, um, and this is you know this is my understanding of the story. So I might get this wrong, um, but you know is that the, you know there's the community that said you know they had some community development money, you know and thought, uh, well you know we could keep doing sort of the community development sort of things that we've been doing or economic development, not community development. That we've been doing, but or maybe we can try something different and try something that's going to appeal to our youth, you know. And so, you know, so they just, you know, in the same way that we did in the Skins workshops, right? We got to video games very quickly once you start kind of going down that path. Um, and uh, you know, and then they went out and found people to uh, to work with to make that thing. And you know, so that's hugely it's hugely significant that the community sort of valued this approach to storytelling. Right, that they that they are willing to say, okay, you know, we think that we think that our important messages about our culture can be carried through the medium of a video game. You know, that maybe sounds obvious to all of us or all the people who might be listening to this, but you know, it's a fairly radical notion when you're dealing with you know anybody other than us <laughs> and people like us. Like when we started the Skins Workshop, it took us two years of conversations with people. Before, you know, because the first response was, "You're gonna, you're gonna take our stories and turn it into a video game," like you know that thing that I see my 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 grandson playing, where he's shooting everybody and chopping them up into pieces with chainsaws and stuff. He's like, "No, I don't think so. That's not that's not the way you tell our stories." So it took two years of like talking with them to get them to the point where we could sort of show them where it might be it might be useful. So it's huge that uh, that the community sort of embraced it as a direction to go and I think really opens it up for other communities to embrace video games as a, as a story with a telling medium that, that can reflect their values and what's important to them. Um, and then also in my understanding of the process, which is, you know, from what they've, what they've said publicly and watching Ishmael give, uh, give a talk uh, a couple years ago, um, is, you know, is that there's, it, you know, they, they did very respectful collaborative work with the community they, you know, they followed all the different protocols about how to sort of find a story and secure permission to use it. Um, and then, you know, there you know, people from the community involved in, you know, many aspects of developing the game and determining what that game is going to be like, right? Um, and as I said much earlier, I mean, for me, that's, that's the key, is that from my understanding is that, you know, this was a, a, a game that sort of originated in the community, at least the idea for a game. You know, and then in terms of what the actual game became, this is something that their you know community members that were heavily heavily involved in, not in an advisory capacity, but as in a you know as a sort of a directive capacity about like mm -hmm. this is sort of what this thing, uh, what this thing should be. So you know both of those things are are huge, especially for a title that's as as polished as as Never Alone is, um, and you know as sort of feels like you know seems like has been taken up 
you know, reasonably well sort of populated, but also critically. So it just raises the, the profile of, you know, games, you know, games that are about indigenous stories that are, that have been made following the proper protocols and uh, are engaging and, and educational, you know, at the same time. You know, though one of the interesting things about when uh, Ishmael talked about it, um, it, I think it was Ishmael, or it could have been the producer that was with him, whose name I can't remember right now, but they said that, you know, they found that one of the most popular parts of the game was actually the little videos, right? Mm -hmm. The little, like, kind of documentary videos that they, they were like, we really put those in for us, right? That was for us and our kids, our community, yeah. you know? But that in looking at sort of uh, kind of gameplay statistics and sort of interviews and stuff like that, they found that, um, you know, for lots of other people's, those were a really compelling part of the experience, you know? And they're not, they're not games, right? They're videos, right? So it also sort of opens up this, you know, lots of interesting territory about, you know, hybridizing things mm -hmm. where you use games as engagement and create investment, you know, but you can also, you know, bring in other types of ways of telling those stories into that mix and people might be, you know, might be compelled by them. So... So yeah, I think it's you know it's very it's significant and it's you know it's fantastic that they got that out there and um, you know created a real you know I think a real kind of milestone in terms of indigenous games. Now you know there's I think as with any video game there's things you could criticize about it. I think that uh, um, you know production processes are complicated and um, uh, and there's always interesting stories about you know behind the scenes like how things are actually made. Um, but that's for everything, you know, everything ever made has, uh, you know, has sort of official stories and semi-official stories and unofficial stories. And, and, uh, and that's where the really interesting stuff is, right, is because then you understand how things actually get made. So, but, you know, the fact that Ishmael and, well, I've, I've just seen him do it in person, but I know there's a couple other members from that community that they're, you know, they're happy and proud to step up in front of that game and mm -hmm. say, you know, this comes from our community and this represents our community. Like that does not happen for productions of that scale very often. And I think that that's a great uh, kind of segue for me to, to point a, a question that's been really, really big in Canadian media over the past couple of weeks. And that's, that's the question of cultural appropriation mm -hmm. and the way, the way to um, <laughs> approach <laughs> <laughs> the way to approach that uh, to uh, First Nations and Indigenous material respectfully, and you you mentioned Jason kind of uh, that the team approached and did this uh, the project of never never alone in the the appropriate way. Maybe maybe we could talk a little bit about that. I'll pass that question over to to Alan. Oh man, so I, I, I guess I guess that's such a big carry ball of earwax. <laughs> um. So I, I guess I would preface it with my thoughts, and these are from conversations with, with multiple people, and especially um, um, Beth, the idea that cultural appropriation is more about power, right? It's more about someone's ability to take um, something from a culture, put it out there in a the mass culture, and then and then directly or indirectly go back and change the culture that it's, it's, it's or the perception of the culture that it's coming from. Right. It's not there's not so much about that blending that we have culturally at, at, at the edges. Um, 
But if you're going to be doing this kind of thing where you're working with people, and, and this goes back to our earlier question, right? You're going to be doing this thing where you're working with people and you're trying to um, shine a light on something, um, make sure that one, people want that light shined. Yes, <laughs> yes. Right? Um, sometimes people just, you know, some not, not everything is there. Um, and, and there's a certain privilege mindset that because you have something, I should have access to it. And that's 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 not necessarily true, right? Just because you have access, just because you can get access to something, doesn't mean you you deserve to have access to it. Um, so, so I guess there's that. And then there's also recognizing just just the power that comes with 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 the privilege. Um, I've had these conversations with my um, um, my my partners, where you know you, you look at things like how how a lot of native um, indigenous art finds its way it's like all kinds of things especially like you know the, the new age world for instance and there's a period where there's all these these religious ideas and like these stories are they're, they're being um, shared out there with, with, with people and like you know to the 60s 70s 50s a lot of that ability to, pra to practice that stuff was illegal for native people right um, you could go to jail for, for, for doing these things but, yep. and where it was perfectly legal for a white person to to wear these feathers or do all do all these things, um, and say it's cool. And so that there there's like this slow removal of of the culture from from the place that it was coming from, a redefinition of it. And then after you know boarding schools and all all, all, all the crap that went on, a reintroduction of the of that cultural ideal back to the people from the people who took it. Um, and so you get generations who have, you know, they've got stories and they've got, they've got a connection to their idea, but it's coming from a place where it's already been kind of warped and affected by these, this, this colonial mindset. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a weird, funky, powerful thing. Um, and, and anyone who wants to, who says they want to engage with indigenous people or, or, or people from other cultures around the world, if they're not doing it in a way where they're trying to respectfully reach out to people, find mm -hmm. out what's important to them, um, find out how, how this stuff is treated, and, and then figure a way to connect not just themselves to a, um, um, a capitalist um, urge, right? They're, they're, they're there to actually connect ideas, to, uh, people to ideas and ideas to people. Um, and we'd be respectful of the ideas. I think that's, if you're not approaching it in that way, then, then you, you're, just, you're just appropriating. So an, an example of this to me, um, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm out there doing like all this, all this extra writing. One of the things that recently has happened is I, I, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing work for, um, I was approached to do work for uh, um, Scion, right, which is an unexpressed game. Um, you know, you're playing children of gods running around. And they came to me initially and said, hey, uh, we, want, we want to include um, a native um, pantheon in, in our list of pantheons. I was like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. They say, well, we want to do the Algonquin pantheon. I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and, and and so we talked uh, for a little bit, and I realized what they, the, uh, for them, the Algonquin pantheon was like this combination of Anishinaabe and Iroquois. Um, and they, and I, I, from looking at it from scholars looking down, um, looking and gathering information about native stuff, the, the word, the verbiage out there says these people are the same same people. Their stories are the same stories. And though there's overlap, there's there's a difference. And so when I pointed that out to them, um, they did the thing which 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 is appropriate, and they listened. They said, "Oh wait, that's not what we thought it was." So and I'm like, "I'm not an Anishinaabe, but I've got I've I've got tons of friends who are. Um, if you want to do this right, I can reach out to them 
and we could focus in on one one group and then open up space for later on doing you know other tribes and whatnot and they were receptive to that whereas you know traditionally in, in, a, in a tabletop um, game space people would have just said no we just we, we just want the native game and we're going to present it this way and we want you to write it for us this way and and the fact that they're they're willing to have that con that conversation i think for the, in the long term make for this really um a much better um product that not only gives access to the, the people um, you know kids who are coming up who who are who are anishinaabe or native who want to play with a native idea is there for them and people who are not native who, who want, want to kind of touch a native idea and, and get an, an idea is there but is there from a perspective that is, that is native perspective and and that changes that experience in a profound way i, I believe and, and, and keeps it from just be going fully over into that space of just appropriation for 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 a, um, a capitalist need to to take something from one group and and use it to make money for yourself i know that's kind of all over the place no 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 that that is that is fair enough i i appreciate that answer uh we're coming to the end of the show so at the end of the show we typically ask the panel to give some advice to designers uh, so i'm gonna kind of boil it down a little bit focus you a bit and uh, we'll start with jason jason can you give one and i'm sure you'd actually do this at your at your job uh can you give one piece of advice to um let's a hypothetical person who is First Nations and wants to design games. What is the first piece of advice you would give to them? What Come work with us. <laughs> yeah, right. and, and why? Why is that the thing? What's the rationale? Um, well, I mean, yeah, so I'll, I'll answer that a little bit more and try to come up with a better, more general answer. Sure. Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, part of what we're trying to do here at, uh, at Aboter Aboriginal Territories in Cyberspace and Concordia University is to create um, uh, a really rich environment for in indigenous uh, designers and indigenous media artists uh, to come and get the training, get the mentorship, get access to the amazing resources we have here at Concordia University for media, uh, media arts, um, and really great video game uh, um, uh, professionals. Um, you know, to, to come into an environment where, first of all, there's a bunch of us Indians around um, who have been doing work in this in this area for a while? So we, you know, we know a thing or two, um, and we're gonna be we're gonna be supportive. You know, a lot of times, indigenous uh, young indigenous people go into educational environments, and you know, they're the only indigenous person or one of only a couple. They have no indigenous instructors. They don't they don't have anybody around them in positions of authority. Know anything about indigenous histories, um, and it can be very difficult and frustrating and lonely. And, you know, so part of what we, what we say is we're like, hey, come work with us. We know some of that stuff already. And, you know, we're here, Aptec is here to, to help make you succeed, you know, and for you to become, you know, a strong, you know, a strong young indigenous creator who's doing work that, for, you know, that furthers, you know, your own goals, but, you know, also hopefully is helping your community in one way or another. So that's that that's my pitch. <laughs> um, you know, but I think you know, but but I guess my, my the other pitch, the non self-serving pitch is very similar which is, you know, see, especially now in 2015 <laughs> with the net and everything is, you know, seek out people like Alan, you know, like like Elizabeth. Um, you know, people who are already sort of working in this space who I think in general are um, you know, they're, they're very interested in sort of helping young indigenous designers 
you know, find their voice, you know, find ways of working, find their way into the, whether it's industry or it's into creative practice. Um, and, you know, it's, I, it's a lot of work on their part. Um, but I think it's something that uh, they're, they're interested in, in doing. Um, you know, because I think most of the other device is, is advice you'd give to any, you know, young designer, you know, about, you know, sketch, 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 sketch. Uh, you know, make, 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 and uh, try to find a context, whether it's um, working with, a, working with a, a, an older designer who wants to, uh, you know, sort of mentor you or coming into uh, formal education like here at Concordia uh, or, you know, the more informal education environments like some of the work that Beth is doing in the community there and, um, and just start engaging and, and start making things and show people, oh, oh, this is a good one. Have a great portfolio. Like spend time on your portfolio because that's the first thing I ask always now is I say, send me a link to your portfolio. And um, if you don't have one, that's a, that's a flag and I, I have to think about that. Or if it's a poor one, I have to think about that as well, right? So make a good strong portfolio that's super immediately available because that at the end of the day, that's what's gonna get people to be like, you know what, I wanna give this person a try. Great answer. Oh, go, go ahead. Oh, totally awesome because we just got Alan just back in time. <laughs> so we'll, we'll ask the <laughs> same question to you. No, that's great. Uh, what would you tell to a First Nations designer who's like just saying, I want to get into this. I, I want to get into <clears throat> game design. What, what are your, fir your What's your first advice? Um, my first advice is to make a game. Um, really, there's... I think people get distracted with this idea that they have to make Never Alone um, or they have to make something that, that's huge that, that, that arrives. And um, the access to tools um, and media is so awesome now, as opposed to when I was younger. Um, you can you get Unreal, you can get Unity, you can get Gamer, you get access to just about everything for free. Um, take the time to make something small, so, small bite-sized thing that you can just hand off to somebody and say, here, play this. Um, it can be a card game, it can be a board game. It doesn't have to be a game. Um, it can just be a series of interactions. It can be a toy. Um, make something so you can say you made something. And once you've made something, you know that you're capable of making something. <laughs> and that and that's a big ego boost, right? Because if you're struggling and you're distracted by the flaws, right, it's really easy to get caught up in this, this, this thought that this one thing isn't quite right. Um, and you never ship. And I, 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 I speak from experience because, you know, I've got a ton of half done things um, and they should be out there. They're not out there because I'm distracted by you know, my perfectionist. I'm distracted by my own flaws. Um, but get it done. Just get a small thing out there and then build on it in layers. Be okay with building on it in layers. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing is what is it you have to say? So games are a voice. And one of the great things about um, getting games like Never Alone out there is that it's showing so many um, Native peoples that, that this is a tool, this is valid as radio or music um, or, or TV or video or film. It's a, it's, a, it's a tool for voice. And you can get your voice out there. And so a game can be fun, it can be endearing, it can be jarring, it can be all these things. So what is it that you have to say and is, and, and is there a way to say it that, that focuses in on, on that point, right? So um, 
make something that speaks from your voice. Don't just replicate what's out there. I'm a big fan of this idea of when we first come into games, we're coming in as consumers, right? We know the games we, we, we love and we have a favorite type of game that, that we're doing. Um, but then we move through this process of going from consumers to what I call curators, right? Where we're, we're pulling together all these bits of pieces of things represent us. Um, we were creating with existing bits. Um, and then we get to a point where, we, where we're creating, right? Where we, we know enough about how the bits and pieces work that we're um, making our own thing, but our own thing is still rep, um, a replica of stuff that's happened before. And then we get to a point where we're agents of change, right? And as agents of change, we're like, hey, I know how to do this stuff. And every time I do a thing, this other thing happens. I see how what I do here causes ripples in these other places. I can create interactions. I can create um, rituals. I can create moments that resonate with people. Um, and I can do that for sheer entertainment purposes, or I can, I can do that to get the point across. So figure out what it is you want to do and how you want to get there. and Just take the steps. Take your time. Be patient. And bring other people in. And those other people don't have to be native. Um, your voice, your perspective is going to give it, um, is going to make it native by default. I think that that is an incredible note to finish up on. And I would like to thank both Alan and Jason for being here today. I'm absolutely honored that you could take uh, uh, this slice of your day out to share with us. Uh, and I have been enraptured listening to both of you speak and, and Elizabeth as well. So from all of us here at Maple Syrup Show, we're, we're wrapping up. And uh, thank you again, Jason Allen and Alan, for being on. Awesome. Thank you. It's Great. Fun. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.